You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to lies and deceptions? Ponder that out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode of Conversation with Paul Vittage, author of The Matchmaker, A Spy in Berlin. And then after the break, you're stuck with me for some random thoughts and observations. Here's a quote I came across. Vittage novels are as if Graham Greene and John le Carrier came together and decided to collaborate. Well, that's some uh, family to join in terms of uh, Graham Greene and John le Carre. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a question slightly off base. I read uh, le Carre's last book, uh, Silver View. Do you have any opinion about that? Because everything he does, and I think you do too, is moral ambiguity. Right. Well, I, I have to confess, I haven't read uh, that book yet. I've been waiting to read it, um, but I haven't. I haven't yet read it. But all of Le Carre's work does revolve, as does Graham Greene's, revolves around moral ambiguity. Men who find themselves in positions to make choices that are not clear cut, and and that's I think one of the great strengths of his work. This is the second time you joined the podcast. The first time is for The Mercenary, which was a terrific book. And this one, I think, even goes beyond The Mercenary. But I'm curious about, are you bilingual, by the way? Not bilingual. Uh, I know Spanish uh, pretty well, um, and I can speak it. Um, but uh, I don't have a third language. Well, here's where I'm going, because a lot of your books are centered in Europe, especially Berlin. And the one thing about European writers, correct me if I'm wrong, is they are bilingual or multilingual just because the countries are on top of each other. And I think that lends an interesting nuance to the kind of stories that they write because they have different perspectives and points of view based on how they understand language. And what you do so well also is just your use of language when you write these books. I think you really capture the moment, even if you're not like a European writer who has access to many different languages, many different thought process, but the way you think fascinates me when you sit down to create oh, your book, the new book, The Matchmaker. Well, my first language was Spanish. So uh, from the age of three, when I was developing my language skills, we lived in Puerto Rico for three years. And I, did, I do think that that had an influence on in how I listened to people speaking and you know my own accent. And then I've lived overseas a number of times. Um, but what I've come to understand is to, to know characters is a little bit like, like knowing wine. Right. Wine comes from terroir, a place, a very specific location, which gives it its character. And I think the same is true of people. You're born into a place, you learn a language, you have the cadences, you have the accent, and all the things that go along with being from a particular place. And I try and, you know, give my characters that sense of place. Um, and it may be in this book, it's the nature of their German accent, which may come from low German, guttural German, as opposed to high German. And those are important distinctions in character that um, I'm glad you picked up on. Um, you know, many years ago, I sat down with a journalist. I think he was working for Newsweek at the time. And it's also in the round Berlin with the fall of the wall in 1989, which is kind of reflected in your book. And he surprised me because those of us from a Jewish background have points of view about Germany and Germans. And he right. said the most expressive language in terms of literature is Germany. Would you agree or disagree with that in terms of just overall writing, expression, and literature? Well, I, I don't uh, speak German, so I can't really I, – I can't answer that with the intimacy of knowing the language. But certainly German literature 
is is nuanced, wonderfully nuanced. But of course, I read German literature and English translation, so I, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to give you a, a good answer to that. But obviously, great literature has has emerged from from Germany, and um, uh, I'm a big fan of of German literature for sure. What about Russia and Germany? lends itself to a fertile landscape for storytellers. Because you, you, you weave that into your books. Um, Joseph Cannon does that exceedingly well, a contemporary of yours who's also a great writer coming out, has a book coming out shortly. Would you kind of, kind of, kind of follow up and address that? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I know Joe pretty well. And um, his book, which is coming out, uh, I think, three weeks after mine, yep. is also set in Berlin. Uh, it's called the Berlin Exchange, which I'm looking forward to reading. Um, when I came across the fact that we were both setting our next novels in Berlin, I said, let's write a piece about what it is that drives writers of espionage novels to set their books in Berlin, because many, many novels have been set in Berlin, espionage novels. And it was a wonderful thing to, to jointly develop with him because what we, what we quickly came to was that Berlin, unlike any other city in the world, suffered probably somewhere around 50 years between Kristallnacht and the fall of the wall, uh, a series of historical moments that sort of shaped the 20th century. There was the war, there was the Cold War, then there was you know the GDR. And it, you know, as Khrushchev said, Berlin was a swampland of spies. <laughs> so, and so we, you know, we're both brought, drawn back to that environment because it's a place where you had, you know, East and West right. um, confronting each other. And in the East, you had the Soviet Union and the GDR was a satellite of the Soviet Union. But there's also a history here, which I pick up in my book, which is that, you know, the central character, one of the characters in the book, um, this guy Kruger, uh, sort of channeled a guy named Marcus Wolf, who was the Stasi's head of counterintelligence. Very interesting character in real life who had been born in Berlin grew up in Berlin, but his parents were communists. They left Nazism and went to Moscow, where he grew up, and then he was with the original group of Red Army troops who um, entered Berlin after the war, and then he set up um, the secret police, the Stasi. So there's this relationship of communism between Germany in the 30s and and Moscow in the 30s that that played out in many ways over the course of those 50 years. My guest is Paul Vittich. The new book is called The Matchmaker. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Our Full Periscope. There's one kind of theme that resonates with me because I'm pop, pulling on popular, popular culture, and that's husbands and wives, secrets and lives. And I think about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the Brad Pitt, Angelina movie, I think of Alma Katsu's book, Red Widow, which I liked an awful lot. And I'm going off base a little bit in terms of secrets and lives and families. But Charles Corral was famous for the CBA series called On the Road, going way back, if you remember. He had, right. he had a secret life. He had two families. And one of the reasons he traveled so much is because he had two separate families. So what I'm getting at is you, you, you most, one of your most important characters is Ann Simpson, an American who is an interpreter now living in Berlin, and her husband, Stefan. And as the book unfolds, there's a lot of secrets and lies and deceptions. Is that accurate? Absolutely. It was, I, you know, I, I enjoy writing about spies uh, in part because lies are a part of all of our lives. Right. Um, and usually they're smaller lies. Um, you know, lies are, you know, an important narrative force in all of Shakespeare's work. But when you're talking about spies, um, lies take on a much larger dimension because they're, they're lying to the world. They're doing it for work. 
And they often operate at several levels of lies. They're lying to their friends, their family, and they're also, in many cases, lying to themselves. And so in this character, Anne Simpson, she, you know, the, the discovery she makes is that the life she has been living, which she enjoyed with her husband, happens to be built on a lie. Right. And then I explore what that means for her. You know, there's a line in there is, can you lie somebody, can you love somebody who's betrayed you? And she has to answer that question for herself. And she sort of looks in the mirror and says, you know, uh, that was a feeling I had. It was a real feeling. I don't want to deny that feeling. And yet at the same time, she has to deal with the consequences of the discovery of who her husband really is. Now, Paul, here's what I thought about talking about and thinking about Ann Simpson. With the Me Too movement, there's something called female agency. And I go back and I think about uh, Josephine Baker, who I've talked about in this program, Eleanor Roosevelt, Lucille Boyd, and go on and on and on. But as your character develops and you develop the narrative, I think the term female agency can be applied to Ann Simpson. Is that correct? Absolutely. She she goes from surprise to hurt to indignation to action and um and and you know this she is my first female character as a protagonist okay and and i had to i sort of when i started writing the book it was pretty clear to me that the the novel that had to be written had to be written from her point of view right because i was dealing with this this issue the romeo network and i i began to ask myself the question could i could i um with any authority write a character, a main character from a woman's point of view. Um, and I sort of, I looked at, you know, the books I, many of the books that I, um, you know, I like a lot. And I answered the question that, yeah, I should be able to do it. Because if you look at Heathcliff, who's this brilliant male character in Wuthering Heights, it's written by a young woman. Ivana Karenina, which is this brilliant female character, is written by a middle-aged Russian. So, if you know, I sort of said to myself, if they can pull this off, you know, uh, it, it's it's not an impossible task. But I had to decide how to go about doing it, and and that challenge became one of, you know, establishing who she was, right? What her needs were, what her interests were, what her vulnerabilities were, and what made her angry. What motivated her? And once I did that, I wasn't really writing a female character or a male character. I was writing a character, a person. And that that is sort of the way I dove into her, you know, into her life. Now, the main title of the book is called The Matchmaker, subtitled A Spy in Berlin. He was the mastermind behind what you call the Romeo, I'll call it the project. Is that the male version of what we would call what Russia does called Red Sparrows? Uh, the Red Sparrows were young women who were trained to go off and use love as tradecraft or sex as tradecraft. Um, and in some ways, the Romeo Network is, is the opposite of that, the reverse inverse of that, okay. because it's young men, East Germans, who were sent into West Germany to establish romantic relationships with young women who are vulnerable in one way or another, and to groom them as girlfriends or wives so that they could be exploited to gather intelligence or simply be an intelligent cover for their own spine. Now, as the story unfolds, I'm not going to do any spoiler alerts because I want people to pick up the book. It's just basically coming out now when we're recording this episode of Artful Periscope. But it starts off missing person, then goes to murder investigation, and finally it goes to, in a very fascinating way, a manhunt. So just share your thoughts about how you shape this Missing person, murder investigation, ultimately a manhunt. Well, I'm, I'm somebody who does outline a book pretty completely. I have all the chapters, I have dossiers on the characters. and uh, But on the other hand, I also allow myself the freedom to let characters take the story where the story needs to go or where they want to take it. 
So I did start off uh, as a missing persons thing. I had that as the premise. But it was in the course of them writing the novel that those two additional layers came in because I was stuck in a chapter. And I said, so what's next? I need another (laughs) has to go somewhere else. And so then it became, you know, a a murder investigation. And and then from that, it became a manhunt. And that those two um, twists evolved almost organically in the writing of the story, which then sort of created all these, what I'll call plot twists that uh, are important to keep the the reader engaged. You know, I'm going to just jump ahead a little bit because when I read a book and I make my notes, I stop, I start, I stop, I start. And you're very evocative in terms of giving a visceral feeling of time and place and structures. And you write about canals and cemeteries. And I'll quickly, I want to mention the cemeteries because we touched upon the other book, um, The Mercenary. And early in the book, there's a scene in the cemetery. And in this book, towards the end, it's almost like you're bracketing. And I don't know if you meant that or not. There's another terrific scene at the end in a cemetery. So I, as a reader, making my connections, love that, even if it wasn't intended. But I want to go back to The Bridge, because I think about the movie with Tom Hanks and Mark Rylands called Bridge of Spies. And I think of your book in terms of exchanges and real history. And I may be off base, but this is the kind of thing that pops into my head when I sit down to write what you create. Well, thank you. Actually, um, now that you mention it, I have not previously thought of this, but as you were talking about cemeteries, I was going back into my mind thinking about each of the books I've written and the one that I'm just finishing. And there's a cemetery in all of them. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And I and I realized that, you know, cemeteries are, are wonderful places because it's a place where you go to sort of understand life and the limits of life and it it's they're evocative and and i know in my own life you know whenever my wife and i would travel to europe i would make a point of going to the cemeteries um and 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 visiting the graves of you know writers or musicians and just sort of having it's a way of communing with you know our collective experience um but having said that um I was very aware of the Bridge of Spies when I was writing this. And uh, there are there are the Bridge of Spies, that particular bridge, I think it's called Glenicky Bridge, right. happens to be in the southwest of Berlin. And it connects a part of the so uh, East Germany to uh, what was then the American section sector of Berlin. But I purposefully chose not to use that bridge, even though I mentioned the bridge. <laughs> but I, I mentioned it, it was like, well, we would never do that because that's obvious. There so I picked yeah. another bridge that was not an obvious bridge. And and it happened to be the bridge that was uh, an important part of the fall of the wall because it was the bridge where all the East Germans collected that evening having heard on the radio that the wall had come down, they collected there. And there was a very tense standoff between the East German um, officer in charge of the bridge and his troops and the thousands of East Germans who collected there. And ultimately, he was given the order to shoot the East Germans, and he chose not to. He disobeyed the order. And that probably had a was an important moment in the history of that evening because had he fired on the the crowd uh, i think there would have been a very different outcome all right so what i want to do uh just remind the audience this is the podcast art for periscope my guest once again is paul vittage the book is called the matchmaker spy in berlin just give us an over you're touching upon that and you're doing a much better job than i would bring him back parts of the book that would resonate with not just with me, but with your readers and your fans. Give us the overall view of what you're writing about in essentially 1989 in Berlin, because it's very steeped in history, but it's also a novel. And you create, in my mind, very memorable characters 
who we either dislike or we root for. Right. Well, I, uh, both the mercenary and this book, The Matchmaker, are set at the end of the Cold War. Um, it, it was a, a period that is, has drawn me to it because, um, like you, I grew up in the Cold War. And the monolithic Soviet Union was this enormous threat all of our lives. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed and the wall fell down, it was a, a remarkable event in our lives. The, the threat sort of vanished. And what we saw are these, you know, individual citizens right. using the freedom of speech and the, the expressiveness of individuality to sort of break out from the, um, you know, the dark curtain of communism. And so that, to me, is fascinating, to look at the lives uh, who were caught up in that moment, um, in the, the fall of the wall, sort of the iconic moment, you know, when we collectively around the world watch NBC broadcast live. It was really the first live moment broadcast like that. Um, we had other moments in the before, which we saw on tape. Right. This was the first live event. And, and, and it, I, my novels tend to be drawn to historical moments. And I find real characters uh, that then become you know, models for my characters. And I put them in these historical moments and then use the historical moment to create an evocative uh, atmosphere and my characters then play out in their lives the conflicts and 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 dramas um, that are sort of wrapped up in this political uh, moment. Paul, throughout history, there have been what I call, for lack of a better way, describe them strongmen: Caesar, Attila the Hun, um, Hitler, Mussolini. Today, Putin, Orban, Chavez, maybe maybe Trump. Is there a, a role or a place for strong men in your book, The Matchmaker, or nobody can be elevated in terms of history to that description? Well, I, I, I chose that moment to write about because uh, in, at that time, it, what we saw was the, um, the curtain – what was behind these um, authoritarian regimes was became naked, and you and you saw the the you know the the urge of these people to get out from under uh, the censorship and the, the indoctr indoctrination. Um, and in some ways, what you're seeing now is that the lessons we learned from that period of time are being forgotten. Because right. you know now there's this new world out there with the the, the Putin is one of them, uh, the strong men and some of the other, even strong men in this country. You know, people forget what it's like to live in a totalitarian or an authoritarian regime. And the the really wonderful moment about the fall of the wall was that we we saw what it meant to be free, and we saw what it meant to individual citizens to be able to express themselves without the fear of being imprisoned. All right. So it, I'm assuming people may not have read the book yet, but there's a very small thing I'm going to pick out that I think about a lot. And it's a very, very, very small part of the book, but it's very, very important for two characters. One is a member of the CIA up there, Winslow, and the other one is, I don't want to give his name away yet unless you want to give his name the matchmaker. And the question I pose to you that we all think about, if you haven't seen somebody for 50 years, would you recognize them? <laughs> Yeah, that was a good question. I asked myself that question <laughs> when I wrote the book. <laughs> um, but it's happened to me. It's happened to me. How so? Uh, Give us an example. Well, an example is it's uh, I'm now celebrating. I celebrated two years, four years ago, my 50th high school reunion. Okay. This year, 2022, I'm celebrating my 50th college reunion. 
there are people I have not seen in 50 years. And some of them I don't, I didn't know then, and I still don't know, but I've, I've met them, you know, through the various different Zoom meetings we've had. And what you realize is that yeah, if you were 50 years, if, if, if the person you're meeting was seven or eight years old, and it was 50 years ago, the, the way in which you change, develop into an adult um, has profound effects on, uh, on who you are. Um, so I, I was able to convince myself that uh, if you hadn't seen a seven-year-old or eight-year-old for 50 years, that you wouldn't recognize them you know, uh, when you came upon them in your late 50s, early 60s. Now, on this podcast, from time to time, we do um, segments with singer-songwriters. So it's one of our favorite things to do because I can sit back and ask stupid questions and they perform. And Chris, who's my technical director and makes everything work, uh, really shines and puts everything together and sounds great. So I wonder if you're a fan of music because there's two mentions of the Sex Pistols and their 1977 song called God Save the Queen. And it's twice in the book. And I kind of like what you do with that. So you want to kind of run with that? Are you, were you or are you a fan of the Sex Pistols? Yeah, I was a fan of all of that music. I worked in the music business for 25 years. Um, but the thing that was most interesting to me was that when I went back to understand what Berlin was like in the 80s and 70s, it, it East Berlin, uh, West Berlin particularly was uh, a, attractive to young people. Because unlike West Berlin, there was no um, draft. So you couldn't get in, you couldn't be drafted. So a lot of 16, 18, 20 year old West Germans went to West Berlin to get away from the draft. And so you had a very large group of people. Um, and they were, you know, in this sort of island surrounded by East Germany, surrounded by at least 200,000 Russian troops and tanks. And it, it created this sort of Petri dish in which right. a lot of culture right. flourished, mostly music. And the music they listened to was music that came in from England or from the United States. And then it was turned into its own sort of thing in West Berlin. Um, and that was, you know, the exciting thing about, you know, being a youth in West Berlin. Um, and so if I was going to write about West Berlin in the 80s, I had to introduce music. Music became their sort of anthem uh, of protest against the world that they found themselves in. Uh, my guest, Paul Vidic, his new book is called The Matchmaker, Spying Berlin. This is what I like to do. Maybe it's boring for people to listen to this podcast over and over again. But I want to give you a chance with the two minutes we have left, because I know that I missed something. And it's invariable. You should have asked this, asked that. So I'm going to give you two minutes to talk about something I may have left out in the conversation or something you just want to talk about to wrap up this segment of the podcast. I, I throw it to you, my friend, Paul Vidic. Uh, well, the, uh, you've touched on many, many of the important things. I, I you know, Ann Simpson uh, is a character who I really enjoyed writing and developing. Um, and in some ways, I, I think of her as a character with this this big story to tell, right. which is in some ways what the book is. And I could imagine sitting down with her over dinner and just taking notes on her life story. And in some ways, that's what this book is. It's the life story that I've written down of this interesting character who finds herself in this almost impossible situation, but then finds sort of the inner strength and the, the moral conviction to take on this problem. And she's taking on a problem basically of the men in her life, her husband, and then the matchmaker and the two CIA agents, right. all of whom want to manipulate her and use her 
And in the end, she she outdoes them. She out manipulates them. And and uh, that felt very satisfying. So my last thought is, and you've been very generous with your time. We talked about this earlier in the episode. I'm going to finish with Ann Simpson is an example of female agency. And we'll leave it at that because that's my thought and my reaction to what she became. And as she leaves the cemetery, at the end, it was terrific, really terrific. Once again, the, your connections, whether they were intended or not, cemetery, cemetery, cemeteries. So I look forward to the next book when you work on writing about cemeteries again. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. We're going to take a short pause or a long pause in case you have to go to the bathroom and get a snack after the break. It's just me, so hang in there. Random thoughts and observations. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson with some random thoughts and observations. When somebody dies, how do you react? Now, we know when you lose a loved one, what could be a parent, a sibling, somebody very close to your family. In my case, obviously, my mom, my dad. Um, I'm very bad when animals die, especially when my dogs die, I die or cats. So that's something else. But the question I'm going to pose to you is, especially when you know somebody, but you really don't know somebody. Let me mention some names, names everybody knows about. Uh, Betty White. Betty White died when she was 99 years old. We found out she had a stroke a few days before she died. She was a few weeks away from turning 100. Sidney Portier, uh, an amazing actor. You think you know him, but there's a lot of things you don't know about him. You know him on one level, but the level we know people like Betty White is through their performances, through the TV shows, through movies and everything else. Did you know that when Sidney Poitier was growing up, he had dropped out of school at a very young age, he was basically illiterate, illiterate. But he was very determined. He ended up moving to the States, to New York City. He got a job uh, as a janitor, a few other things. He went and it was a local theater in Harlem that he went for an audition. And you had you, you what's called sides. You have to read them for the audition. And the guy basically said, stop right there because he really basically didn't know how to read. Now, if you can't read your sides or the script, nobody's going to say, we, we like the way you look and the sound of your voice. You go back to being a janitor. Go back to other jobs, and that's that's as far as you can go. And he basically he walked away from that, saying, "This guy thinks the only thing I can be is a janitor." And what he did, he, he got a radio, and he started listening to all the people on the radio, and all those people had had talk shows and commercials and everything else. And he listened, and he listened, and he listened, and he changed his voice from the accent that he had prior to coming to America, and you've ever heard his voice, you know what they say? You can read the telephone book, and we're going to listen. And it's true. And he became so determined, but we thought was a slight that you, this is as good as you can be. You're not going to go anywhere place else. And he became a beloved actor and activist. So I hearken back to what you think you know on one level is a lot of things you don't know, as opposed to a family or a beloved member dying. Bob Saget, if you were a television fan of episodic TV, Bob Saget, full house. Bob Saget, full house. That's probably how you know him. Did you know that he was, prior to that, a stand-up comedian? Very profane. Very blue. Totally different persona that the, the character in Full House 
No, there's a great podcast called WTF by Mark Maron. Mark Maron is actually pronounced his last name. And he's had, I don't know, 1,800 episodes, a little more than what we have here for the podcast, but we'll, we will catch up. Well, maybe Chris will still be here, but somebody will catch up with Artful Periscope after I'm gone. But when somebody dies, because Mark's been doing his podcast for he's probably one of the first ones to do a podcast, and he comes out of the world of com comedy, but he's so well-respected. He has President Obama. He gets everybody because this is the place to go if you want to get visibility and get a great interview because he's very conversational, and he's very honest about his own foibles. And he brings himself into the conversation. So if you look up WTF on Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find it, he's brought back three interviews with Bob Saget. And it's, it's illuminating. And Bob Saget has tragedy with both of his it's, uh, female si siblings have died. He's raised a lot of money. So here's this guy you think you know from Full House, who you don't know is a very profane uh, blue comedian who's done stand-up for many, many years. And... Ironically, he was on the road when they found him dead in his hotel room. And I haven't I heard anything about the autopsy, and it was no foul play. I didn't think there was any drugs involved in anything else, but there you go. Now, you have to be of a certain age, really a certain age, to remember the TV show called Dobie Gillis. You know, and and... A very young Warren Beatty was on that show before he became Warren Beatty. Another great actress, I guess, in a sense. I don't want to say she was a sex symbol at the time, but a very a lot of very young men used to watch um, Dobie Gills to see Tuesday Weld. And also on that show was a character called Maynard, which was played by Bob Denver, who later on became famous for Gilligan's Island. But the star of the show was Dwayne Hickman. And he also recently passed away. So some of us remember Dobie Gillis, loved Dobie Gillis, because in those days of three channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC, um, when it came on the air, you had to watch it. You had to watch it. There was no DVRing it. There was no finding it. Maybe it's being streamed somewhere right now. So when he, when he died, most people of a certain age will not remember Dwayne Hickman, but I do. But I only remember him in a certain way. I don't know very much about his personal life. You can read the obituaries, and that kind of fills you in. But it's, there's more to everybody that you think you know, but you really don't know. Now, raise your hand. I can't see you, but you can raise your hand. How many of you made it to Woodstock? How many of you remember Woodstock? And here's my Woodstock story. I was a college student. It was the summertime. And like a lot of kids at that time, we went out all night, hang, going to hell, hanging out, drinking, and listening to a lot of music, and being up to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and rolling into bed. Now, my problem was my summer job was opening up, cleaning up and opening up a local bar on Long Island. So I had some nights I didn't go to sleep. I didn't go to sleep because I had to go in, clean up, tap the cakes and everything else. I had tickets to Woodstock. I'll say it again. I had tickets to Woodstock. And by the time I was ready to leave my job, quote unquote, about eight o'clock in the morning, because I had to get there at five o'clock in the morning, do all the setup and clean up and everything else, which is a cool job. And the fact that I couldn't keep my eyes open, then nobody would bother me. And by the time I was ready to leave, they said, the roads are closed. You can't get in. So to this day, I, I'm, I saw the movie. I love the movie Woodstock. Uh, my biggest lament is I don't know what I do with the tickets, probably because I was so pissed off, if I can say that. I probably threw them away because I knew I couldn't get in. And if I had still had those Woodstock tickets, I would have paid for my college, my daughter's college education, who just got her master's and doctorate in physical therapy. But I digress. reason why I mention that, if you, if you saw the movie, the primary organizer with long, long curly hair was Michael Lang. And you remember the movie, he was all over the place because the fences came down. He was going in and out, in and out on his motorcycle. Michael Lang just died. And he's very prominent in the movie. For a lot of us at that time, I remember him. I remember him. I'm going to mention another name from the world of music and rock and roll. 
is that there was a terrific girls group called the Ronettes. And they were famous for because of Phil Spector called the Wall of Sound. If you're a fan of music, I don't care who you are, check out the Ronettes and that sound. Because Phil Spector later went to prison for killing somebody in his home, by the way. Ronnie Spector, who at one time was his wife, just died. Just died. I'm putting out all these names. Now, here's the last name in this particular part of Random Thoughts and Observations. I love, I read the books, the Dexter TV series on Showtime. I watched, I read the books first. So when this TV series came, I just jumped right in with both feet and both hands. And the series ended a few years ago. And a lot of people thought that they didn't like the ending. Primarily, it was set in South Florida and Miami area. And I think the powers that be that created Dexter heard this and were not happy with the ending. So they came back with a new season this year called Dexter New Blood. He's now living in some place upstate New York or something. So the juxtaposition between very warm Miami and this new season in a very, very cold place. And he's now got a new name. Michael C. Hall is the actor who's very good and been on a lot of other TV programs. And I like him a lot. He pretty much is Dexter. Even when he's questioned, are, are you Dexter? And he's still, hey, no, I'm Michael C. Hall. But he still has this look of Dexter. He's kind of incorporated and channeled the character, although he's nothing like the character. I don't think. I don't know him that well. But this last episode, if you if you know the whole arc from the first time of the previous series to now, Dexter was born in blood. His young son Harrison was born in blood. And I'm going to give it away. I'm going to give it away with the last episode. You can't find me, hopefully, so you won't bother me. But Dexter at the end dies in a pool of blood. And here's the part that kind of bothered me. Because I only know Dexter through the character on TV show. I was kind of hoping he was going to get away. I really was. Selfishly, I want to see how he's going to get away and where he's going to end up and everything else because I want to see another series. But they booked ended it so perfectly that it's not going to happen. I had a discussion with other people. And the way that it ends, his son Harrison has found him in this new place. And he's now, I don't know, 17 or 18 years old because I think he was four years old when uh, his mother was killed, which is one of the arcs in the previous series. And as his son Harrison has found – and Dexter thinks that uh, Harrison is him. He's got that dark angel inside, that darkness and to want to kill, make things right through killing bad people. And he thinks the son is going to follow him along. He sees some similarities there. And they're about to escape together. And the son pulls out a rifle because they're in this wooded area, which is in also in the beginning of the new series, which also has a connection because a, a very a sacred white deer is killed and it's a pool of blood in, in the snow. So the connections are fascinating. They really are fascinating. And the son pulls out the rifle shoots him, and as the son is pointing the rifle to his father, and you hear Dexter say, or maybe it's a voiceover, he says, for the first time, I understand love, as his son shoots him, and that's the ending. So what you think you know about somebody, you may not necessarily know, but I'm still kind of hoping Dexter was going to get away, but... They ended the way they were going to end it, born in blood and die in blood, and kudos to them. I want to talk about breaking down barriers. Israel's National Library says the number of visitors to its Arabic website as part of its outreach has over 650,000 users from Palestine, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Algeria. So we, we look at the world sometimes for a very small, narrow view, tunnel in a sense. And the conflict between Arab world and the Israeli world, they've been fighting this since going back forever, going back forever. So this outreach in terms of breaking down barriers, in a world where there seems to be right now very little hope, 
gives me pause to say, well, maybe. If these two long-term enemies at odds for religious reasons and reasons they probably don't even understand anymore, it's, it was one of the ultimate blood feuds, is getting this reaction to Israel's National Library in term, and its Arabic website gives me hope that maybe something is happening that we don't totally understand, but it is happening. His name is David Bennett. He's 57 years old. He just, and he just had a transplant from a pig to himself. When I talk about breaking down barriers, by the way, pigs are very intelligent animals. They really are. Sometimes maybe they're more intelligent than we are. And that's a question we can, we can debate, but, but they gen genetically modified the heart of a pig for David Bennett. One reason why there is a huge shortage of organs for transplants, and if they can genetically modifi modify animal parts to extend the life of people that need this, this is really breaking down a barrier. Now, I don't know about religious aspects of this and who's going to say this is you're going against God's will. Sports fans, Rachel Breakovic will become the first female skipper in the New York Yankees organizations. Others in the sports world have broke barriers. Going back to 1975, Frank Robinson came the first African-American major league manager for the 1975 Cleveland Indians, who are now changing their name. And I, I love basketball. I've been following basketball forever. My daughter was a very good high school basketball player. We used to go to see a lot of the games, especially WNBA. And one of the stars from the WNBA who later became a coach is Becky Hammond. Becky Hammond coached the, the San Antonio Spars, which is a men's NBA team, in one of their summer leagues. Another example of breaking down barriers. Finally, when you sit down to name a child, how much thought do you give? I think the right name can really help. Man, I think the wrong name when that kids becomes of age. Um, at least they have a chance to change their names. And some celebrities give their kids such ridiculous names. It's also like, look at me, look at me. I'm special. So my kids are really special. And uh, Zappa did that with his kids. And they changed their names when they got to be old enough and... Uh, Oh, my God. Kanye West and his children, um, you know, it's it's almost like I can't keep up with the proper word, but it's almost like, come on now. Look what you're putting on this kid's head. And also some of these names, it becomes a sense of entitlement. Children have a sense of themselves, not feel like they're not worthy or too worthy. So Josie Barnes, who's 27 years old from Devon, England, has named her child... Lucifer. Lucifer. And my first reaction is I'm looking at Chris right now. You can't see, but he's sitting right next to me and he just gave me a look, by the way. Lucifer. And I said, why would you do that? It turns out if you do a little bit of research now, she's been taking a lot of you know what from everybody online and tweets and everything else. You named your kid Lucifer? And I'm sure people are picketing. They're trying to find out where she lives. And she says, and I, what I learned is Lucifer comes from a Latin derivation, L-U-X, lux, which means light bringing. And this woman, Josie Barnes, said, this is why. I'm not a devil worshiper. This comes from a, a, the right place, light bringing. So I don't know if this kid is going to change his name when he gets old enough, but sometimes we make assumptions and then we can do a little bit of or if our homework, or just take two steps back, we can kind of understand where people are coming from. And hopefully, as the world right now seems to be at a very 
point where it can explode. Um, by the time you hear this podcast, maybe we'll find out what's going to happen with the with Russia and Ukraine. A lot of things are happening. A lot of things are happening with the fact that there's voter suppression going on in this country. We can't pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We, we can't. And that is um, very troubling. So I know a lot of people don't want to talk about politics, but there are certain things that are beyond politics. Everybody in this country should have a right to have their voice heard. And the right to have this voice, your voice heard is you vote and then with the, let the chips fall when you may. But we should participate any way that we can. So I want to thank my one of my favorite writers, Paul Vidic. His new book is called The Matchmaker. Um, this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be back next time. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cristofaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair She broke your throne and she cut your hair And from